I'm not trying to argue that uh, religion itself is just a fiction. I'm trying to argue that all truth has the structure of a fiction. Deconstructionist Podcast. We are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. And I'd like you to think for a moment about the last time you were at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, like you to, I'd like you to think for a moment about the last time you walked in and ordered your, you know, grande, non-fat, soy, six pumps vanilla, one pump hazelnut, no whip, ristretto, Americano macchiato <laughs> or whatever it is you get at Starbucks. You know, maybe you're just like me and you just like some simple cold brew or whatever the bold roast of the day is. If you can't find a nice local roaster um, like John and I are about to enjoy here in a moment, <laughs> but you're at Starbucks and you mindlessly order and you mindlessly get your drink. You maybe smile. You probably don't even tip and you may have been served by an absolute intellectual titan. <laughs> the most intelligent coffee barista ever. Like when, when we were talking to the guy that you guys are about to hear this conversation, my, my mind went on this like ADD <laughs> rabbit trail because he says like, yeah, when I was working at Starbucks and I'm like, what? What? <laughs> I'm like, I guess these are real people that had real, you know, jobs yeah. <laughs> right yeah actually i would love to be a barista at starbucks if i yeah. if i could make the same you know kind of living that i make now in the, in my corporate job being a barista ah oh, dude i would love it my extroverted personality being around coffee all day like my favorite job growing up i was a bus boy that really? was my favorite job i loved being a bus boy I always wanted to work at a record store, but I was born a little bit too late for that. Yeah. Because they, you know, they went the way to the dinosaur. Or basically. too early because yeah, record true. store. <laughs> Ride that second wave, man. You were in the black hole yeah. of, of potential record store jobs. The weird void. <laughs> so when Tad Delay, who you guys are just going to get your minds blown by this guy, I, I could not tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. He's talking about how he used to be a barista. And John, I just couldn't help but think like... <laughs> What if, you know, you just don't even know, like, you, you, you just got served your latte by, like, the next Einstein or the next yeah. Freud or the next, wow. I went, th I went to the same place. I was like, wait, what? Uh, you can't do that. <laughs> what? what are no. you doing? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we just forget how real these people actually are. So tell us about, who is this guy? John, tell, tell our listeners who they're about to expect here. This I, guy's amazing. I just had this thought that he hands you your latte and then tells you why it just doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Or what subconscious desire you're fulfilling by coming right. to Starbucks and getting a latte. You decided to get the whipped cream? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you shouldn't have got the whipped cream. <laughs> <laughs> um, this guy is just, he's hes kind of into a bunch of different fields. So continental philosophy, theology, psychoanalysis, critical theory, and politics. 
Um, the guy decided that it wasn't enough to have one master's degree, so he has two of them. Uh, one in philosophy uh, of religion and one in theology, and he's currently a PhD student um, at uh, Claremont. And uh, I believe he also he's also a um, professor, right? He's teaching courses, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, which is which is pretty incredible because I don't think he even touched on this too prominently on the podcast, but he's sort of in um, a place theologically that's just a big question mark. Yeah, and doesn't necessarily believe in God in the in the sort of traditional sense, and yet he's a professor professor at a Christian university, Christian, yeah. which is just really interesting. But you know his. His really his special area of expertise in the the book that we talk a little bit about. We don't really get too far into the book. We're gonna have to do another episode, um, but that's probably a good thing because <laughs> this guy needed some serious in- introduction. But um, yeah, so the guy that he's studied basically his whole life is this really mysterious figure in philosophy and psychoanalysis, Jacques Lacan, which just makes you feel intelligent. Yeah, to just even say. <laughs> Jacques Lacan. And this dude read everything in English that this guy ever wrote. Yes. I mean, and here's a guy, uh, Jacques Lacan, who is so difficult to understand that one of his most famous quotes, which actually I think that the the book God is Unconscious that Tad DeLay wrote kind of starts off with a quote similar to this. If it's not the same quote, I'm sorry, I'm probably botching this. But um, he didn't, Lacan says, I didn't write to be understood. I wrote in order to be read. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. it's just like he—he's so, so mysterious. He's you know this French psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, sort of philosopher who's called the most controversial psychoanalysis since Freud. And this guy Tad Delay takes this super esoteric, post-structural psychoanalytical philosophy, and applies it to beliefs. And brings it to a point that I don't know about you, but I was feeling very like, not convicted in like a spiritual sense, but like he points out the inconsistencies in all of us. Yeah. Which man, talk about a great topic for deconstruction. And then, you know, the cool thing about deconstruction is anytime somebody points out holes or inconsistencies, that's where you have a place to start to do reconstruction. When things kind of fall down, that's where the focus then comes to spend time and new building and new growth kind of starts to come up. So I've been really contemplating this this conversation we had with him for the last week, and uh, I'm so, I'm excited to get everybody's feedback on it and hear what everybody thinks because I, I think this is one of our best. The thing that's kind of interesting to me is coming from kind of the perspective of, you know, I'm not really sure what I believe or right. where I'm at. Um, he, he kind of like some of the some of the other really great thinkers that we've talked to he's kind of like well i i kind of leave it open-ended though yeah he's like i could end up you know believing again or right right you know right yeah but i love that but he's like i refuse to stake a post in the ground right here where i'm at now because that could change he's giving himself space yeah and room i think that's hugely important so yeah i think that's hugely important too and you know i gotta i gotta say i think we're pretty lucky to have gotten this guy when we got him oh my gosh yeah He's going to blow up. I think so, too, man. I think a few years from now, everybody's going to be talking about Mm -hmm. Tad DeLay. Yeah. And he's been, if you guys follow some of the other uh, podcasts out there, he's been on shows like Life After God, um, Homebrewed Christianity, and um, our buddy um, on uh, our our friends with Freestyle Christianity, too. So he's done a few other interviews, but really just not 
not a ton yet, but I think he's going to get get going as as word gets out here. Man, let's roll tape on this and uh, we can debrief a little bit afterwards. Sounds good. Without further ado, the mysterious, the inspiring, the interesting tad delay. to the Deconstructionists podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here. We are super excited to have you here, friend. Um, you are, you know, it's kind of like Pete Holmes does the like Friends of Rob Bell. Uh-huh, yeah. We're, we're doing like the Friends of Pete Rollins. <laughs> like something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pete told me that you guys might be reaching out, so it's good to get in touch finally. I'm yeah, glad absolutely. that he actually remembers us. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I listened to your interview with him and it went pretty well, so yeah, I feel like I kind of know what you guys are up to and say so i feel like it's a pretty, pretty good time oh uh, i think we're gonna Excellent. have a, a great time here uh one i think the best place to start is you know your your work's just kind of kind of starting out you're you're blowing up in a lot of the uh definitely the academic circles and being connected with pete and doing some podcasts and stuff people are kind of starting to talk about this tad delay guy and what he's doing with all these really <laughs> really obscure thinkers and like people uh-huh. that it's like people haven't even heard of and all this kind of stuff and i want to get into all of that but where i want to start is just you man just you've got a really interesting story that <laughs> is going to connect with so many people from so many different spectrums of our podcast so what i'd love to do is just start about Start out about like kind of who you are, where you are personally, right. spiritually, professionally, and talk a little bit about your evangelical upbringing and, the, and, that, <laughs> and that short stint as a pastor that that went off like a flare that that you had there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess one of the things that I really want people to always know about the work that I do is that it is um, it is completely is 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 abstract and as complicated as it seems that I can make things. It is completely <laughs> grounded in this world that I come out of. Um, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, in a very conservative evangelical setting, um, and I was one of those kids who was always, uh, always in church, always volunteering for everything, doing the mission trips. Um, and then, uh, probably around sort of late high school, I decided that I was interested in going into ministry full time as an adult. Um, so I, you know, sort of did my uh, college internships to that, you know, in that direction. Um, and always loved it, always loved it. And then, you know, somewhere along the line, I guess I started having a, a, a reading a bit more philosophy and a bit more theology. And that was challenging to the, the very, uh, sort of dogmatic beliefs that I was raised with, but it was always still, I always still really enjoyed it. And I absolutely loved the people. Um, and then I, towards the end of college, really, um, I started working with a, a number of church plants, and they all seem to be catastrophically awful. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but one in particular, one that, like this is, this is one of the most bizarre. I don't know if anything more bizarre will ever happen to me than, than this particular story. I was working with this one church plant, 
And so, you know, I'd been on staff for just a little bit of time, and my views around uh, the, the the gay issue, I guess we could, uh, the, I guess we say, evolved, uh, matured, <laughs> perhaps. Um, yeah. So I started, you know, I started reworking some of the things that I'd sort of my inherited beliefs, and started kind of realizing that what I had always thought just wasn't working for me anymore, not for my friends and family and people that I knew. Um, so one day, I I told my senior pastor that I was starting to change some perspectives on things. Um, and, you know, I had that discussion and I really, I don't mean to make myself a martyr. I was, I had no idea it would be a big deal because we always kind of emphasized openness in our congregation and differences of perspective, um, which there's not a lot of that in Arkansas. So that was, that was something that, it, <laughs> that yeah, you guys were that, really that pioneering. You were trailblazing out there. <laughs> Just being nice to people as a whole. Right. So, um, yeah, so I honestly, I had no idea it was be a big deal. And, uh, you know, he did, he kind of, uh, didn't say much at the time, called me back the next day and said we needed to meet. Um, and then I was told my services would no longer be needed. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, like the whole thing, and, he, and he, I guess at the time he sort of couched it in a few other things, you know, he said like, you know, I'm not sure that you believe the same thing as, as you're supposed to about, you know, hell or atonement or some other thing, but it was always the, the, the thing about, you know, being gay, not being a sin, uh, that, that was, that, that was like the big thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he's, so I didn't really understand what had happened at the time. It was really, really traumatic. It caught me completely off guard. Mm -hmm. And I had a few friends that were, you know, part of that, that, that really stood up for me and that was great. But then I had other friends that I had sent, like been super close with since middle school, perhaps, um, who seemed really supportive of this guy getting rid of me. And that was really difficult. Oh, man. Um, and then, yeah, so like that happened for, you know, sort of this nine month period. And in this nine month period, I kind of decided, well, I really care a whole lot about philosophy and theology. Um, but I'm not sure that I ever want to be in a position where my income is attached to that again, just because yeah. I want to be as free as possible to think. And for some reason, I thought that the, like, uh, teaching at a college would be a whole lot different. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess it is, you know, to some degree, but there's still all those same politics in, in universities. Um, so I decided that I wanted to go the academic route. Um, so I actually decided to go to seminary um, as sort of a staging ground for a PhD. Wow. Um, after deciding that I no longer wanted to do the pastoral thing. Um, but then after I'd made that decision, and this is kind of where it gets super weird, um, my, I, I awoke to an email one day. A buddy from that old church had sent me a link, and he said, "Yeah, you need to see this, Tad." So I click on it, and it's my former pastor, again, who had fired me for for being uh, affirming of gay people. Um, he has been arrested for having a relationship with an underage boy. Uh, yeah. So. Wow. Uh, yeah, so this was, and this is like only, I mean, this is going on seven years ago, and it's just now something that I'm starting to feel comfortable talking about in any capacity, uh, because even, you know, it's it's just a bizarre story. I mean, so part of what made it so bizarre was like, it kind of became very apparent that it wasn't even my views on gay people that was what he needed to get rid of so much as just to appear more safe, I guess. Mm, yes. Wow. Yeah. Oh, um, and then the weirdest part is probably a lot of the people who had supported him that I, again, some of which I had known since middle school um, and been very close to, um, some of those people actually became even more hostile towards me afterwards, after it became apparent that... Really? Getting rid of, 
Yeah. So, um, and, and so, the, and that's been sort of one of the questions about how belief works. That's always operated in the background for me because it's not as if these were bad people, right? Like, I don't, I don't think of them as like supporting this uh, uh, pedophile, right? Like, I right. don't don't think of them as like evil people, but there is something I think, um, especially in evangelical culture that can see, uh, progressive beliefs is actually worse in a way than, uh, a temporary moral failing that God can sort of reel you back from. Does I've that make that. sense? I've yeah, seen, absolutely. So I've seen that more times than I care to recount. Right. And it's not that they're like a bad person. It's just like this, like we find ways to expel the outsider expel the symbol that uh, sort of reminds us of a part of us, right? So mm-hmm. if I became a symbol of somebody making a really bad call, like it's just easier to kind of get rid of me, I guess, altogether. Um, and so, you know, as a result, so I'm, I'm very happy with where I am and what I'm doing now, you know, and have a whole different kind of uh, social circle now. But, you know, a lot of like, I've never actually had one person from that phase of life ever come back and apologize for that. And in a weird way, that kind of makes sense how that works, you know? Man, so that really was formative in how you chose the rest of your academic career. Well, it was formative in the sense that, like, it got me off the pastoral route and it gave me kind of an introductory lesson in how people select and disavow beliefs. Mm. Uh, Not much of what I do day to day really has anything to do with that, but that has always kind of been in the background, this kind of picture of how... Uh, how we how we dispense with outsiders, how we uh, trick ourselves, maybe would might be a, a way to say it. There's a very crude way to say it, but how we trick ourselves into thinking that we uh, believe things that we don't necessarily believe. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. So um, at Fuller and then beyond Fuller, what are some of the things that you learned? What are some of the, the programs that, you know, what kind of, not necessarily degrees, but, you know, focuses or, you know, what do you want? Tell us a little bit about kind of who you are academically and, and what that means for the work you're doing right now. Okay. Well, um, so I, I graduated, I, I'm the first in my family, I believe, to, to ever even go to college. Um, but then, so I, and I majored in psychology, but I never really did a whole lot of, of psych theory until I actually got to Fuller. Um, and, and then through a series of uh, scholars became exposed to psychoanal- psychoanalytic theory. And, you know, in, in college, like, psychoanalysis day is like one day in a theories class and it's not really explored, right? It's like, okay, yeah, we covered that. Yep. Okay. Moving moving right along. (laughs) And I didn't actually have any clue that uh, psychoanalysis was still like an extremely serious discourse within humanities theories. So I didn't actually, so I I managed to get through a bachelor's in psychology before realizing that anyone still read this stuff and studied it. So uh, so I started reading psychoanalysis uh, a little bit Freud. Uh, I was a little bit introduced to it through the work of Merrill Westfall and then an advisor of mine named uh, Clayton Crockett, who's a, a very well-known scholar in my world. 
um, uh, and a few others. Um, and then around that same time, I was starting to read Pete uh, and uh, starting to read Zizek, who influences him quite a bit, and then yeah. his character, the Khan, that I, that I study now. Um, but it was really in that seminary period where I started reading um, this material, and I just attached to it in a way that I didn't attach to any other philosophical strand. You know, like, so Zizek uses this one example of like, you know, he'll use the term disavow. And he says, you know, in psychoanalysis, you have this concept called fetish disavow. And what that is, is you cannot enjoy you unless you have this, this fetish, right? So without getting too crass about how that works, <laughs> example, he says, you know, when somebody says like, um, are, are we doing damage to our environment? Right. Uh, and they kind of say, well, maybe, maybe not. But then you walk outside and the air feels good and the sky is clear and you look at this big blue sky and you think, well, you know, we couldn't possibly be doing any, anything to a world this big, you know, we're not, we're not that big or whatever. Um, so like the symbol of like a blue sky or the fact that there is wind outside and it feels kind of good outside today can be a way to, uh, fetishistically disavow, uh, what we actually know to be true. Right. Wow. So I started seeing examples of this, I guess, everywhere, like um, all throughout theology. It seemed like there were so many things that we would kind of know, OK, this idea doesn't really work that well. Um, but as long as we can come up with some crappy, super abstract argument, um, then we can sort of pretend as if this idea would work if we just got all the pieces together in the right place. OK, right? I, that- I love this. You got to give me an example. I wanted. I, lo- I would love it if you gave me an example. The stuff I love. This stuff. Okay. Okay. I'm. I'm trying to think. Um, Anything. Okay. Okay. Um, here's. Here's. Uh, here's one way that this sort of plays out for me. So um, I came across this quote by this uh, Jewish rabbi Abraham Yahshua Heschel. Oh yeah. Familiar with him? Absolutely. Yes. He has this quote that I absolutely love um, in his book *God in Search of Man*, uh, which already God in search of man, right? Like you already <laughs> know he's playing with your your note because a God doesn't have to look very far for someone, right? Yes. So you already know that he's playing with you. Um, and he has this quote that goes, uh, "I got it here. Intellectual honesty is one of the supreme goals of philosophy of religion. Just as self-deception is the chief." chief source of corruption in religious thinking, more deadly than error. And this is a part that I really like. He says, hypocrisy rather than heresy is the cause of spiritual decay. Oh, and so wow. that's always stuck with me. Cause so, uh, so, okay. But the thing is, is like, um, hypocrisy actually can be a primary value, um, for a culture, especially when you have a very dogmatic culture where you're supposed to believe certain things, um, it actually can very quickly become, all right, we need to disavow this difference. We just need to lie to ourselves or we need to um, only participate with people who are going to participate in this myth along with us. Right. Um, so, so maybe here's an example. So here's one thing. Um, I was discussing this with one of my old professors just the other day. This is something, what I'm about to say, that like I cannot tell you how many people I know that experience absolute dread uh, because they feel like their churches or their universities are requiring them to lie. Um, so here's one thing that you learn on the first day of a hermeneutics class. So after you've done your Greek and your Hebrew and you're finally, you're all sitting together with 50 people in a room projecting old manuscripts on the board and you're comparing different manuscripts and seeing how they differ of the New Testament, right? Um, So we have, uh, here's the thing you learn on the first day. We have 5,300 first millennium Greek manuscripts, at least 5,300. Yes. uh, Probably another 10,000 or so smaller parts. Um, Not any two of them match. All right, so really? 50, 
300. <laughs> no two of them are exactly alike. That means, and, okay, so you go, you, as a pastor, you, you go to seminary, you accumulate $100,000 in student loans, and then you graduate, and a church tells you, okay, you can have this job and all the security along with it, um, only on condition that you sign uh, the statement about inerrancy. You know, we don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, we don't need to hear that there's, you, we don't need to hear anything that you learned about how to compare differing manuscripts. We don't need to hear how, like, we don't actually necessarily know what any single New Testament book looked like, right? Uh, like, we don't have the original manuscript. Now, we can get really, really close, right? But as for the, like, if we, if our life depended on it, we could not with certainty reconstruct any particular document. Uh, perfectly, right? But we're still expected to sort of play along in this game as if we could, right? Where it's just a matter of translating properly or understanding context more, uh, where there's no real threat. It's just it's just a matter of honing basically the beliefs that we already have, right? So I think that that's kind of an interesting way for me. So I, you know, I have a lot of friends that will talk about you know this is a really troubling thing to to have to be required to uh, pretend to believe, right? Yeah. Um, because um, there's no such thing as a as someone who, um, I mean, and I know this is probably going to sound uh, arrogant of me to say, but um, really, there is no such thing as a, a scholar who's seriously studied the material and been well educated on it, who would uh, believe in something like inerrancy. Like that's just it, just because that's the opposite of what it takes to do biblical studies. Biblical studies is admitting that there are all sorts of errors in a text. And we need to kind of look through and think about why those errors might be there, what it says about the community, how we have changed ideas about God over time. Absolutely. And most of the time, those errors are not significant. A lot of times, they're simply exchanging a the for an an or something similar like that. Right, right, right. They're removing entire chapters. Occasionally, um, entire parables jump from one gospel to the other. Occasionally, the word uh, uh, we are saved by the Father, Son, and Holy Water changes to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit after the Church of uh, the, after the Council of Nicaea adopts a Trinity doctrine. Right. Yeah. So occasionally they're big, but you're supposed to pretend as if those don't exist. I right. guess. Uh, Absolutely. Right? So, so those are the types of things that we uh, like to disavow, and I'm and I'm interested in how communities sort of. Um, uh, develop this group cohesion precisely by pretending as if certain things aren't true uh, that sort of in many ways run contrary to the whole uh, purpose of that community. Yeah, uh, we, we just had a conversation with um, a guy named Greg Boyd. He's uh, I think he has a degree in philosophy actually from U of M. Yeah. He's, he's a pastor up in Minnesota. With him. He yeah. talks about a lot about the anti-intellectualism in, in the church and especially in the clergy that he just can't stand, um, this, this sort of spiritual agoraphobia, uh-huh. um, which it's, it sounds to me like you're saying the same thing. It's like this, you are not allowed to pull the, like pull the blinds shut, keep the door locked. And mm-hmm. like all these truths exist within this house that we've constructed and don't, don't wander outside of this. You're not allowed to. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it, always lost on dogmatic religious people is how truly little Jesus got along with dogmatic religious people, right? 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, but we seem to think that it's okay to be part of the tribe of certainty and the guardians of morality and uh, you know all that crazy stuff. Um, oh, as if, as if uh, our our supposed savior would have anything to do with that, right? Right. Um, and that's that's Greg Boyd talking up in the north. I mean, I'm I'm from the Bible Belt, so <laughs> <laughs> it works even worse down there. <laughs> so so. Yeah. At this point, you you're working your PhD. Uh, uh-huh. You've 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 gone through Fuller, and I'm just curious, where do you find yourself spiritually now, um, as well as how has that translated into your professional career? Um, that is a, that is a hard question. I think. For good, any- good. <laughs> like hard questions. Um, I'm still not quite sure. Um, it's um, there's, I guess the the most honest I could be about it is that uh, this studying this material does make for uh, it makes it incredibly difficult not to be completely skeptical all the time, and I think that that's actually a good thing. Um, I, you know, so like I occasionally go to church, uh, very occasionally. I'm, I'm not a particularly good Christian about that, uh, but, uh, but I do occasionally, um, but not super regularly. And, but at the same time, uh, studying this material every day, uh, gives me such a deeper appreciation for it, um, than I would have had when I was at church, uh, five times a week, you know, so it's this, it's this weird conflicted feeling. Like there's a lot of, uh, messed up material in it, right? There's like there's a lot of abuse in this system. Uh, mm. There's a lot of anti-intellectualism, um, and then I also see a lot of goodness coming out of it too. I mm. see a lot of people that find a lot of life in it. Um, so I don't quite know what to think. And I guess maybe um, I guess maybe something I should add in is that uh, part of my work is is sort of conditioned on the idea that the things that we do and believe isn't something that we really choose all that much. It's, mm. it's, it's not really that your beliefs, you don't really choose your beliefs so much as your beliefs choose you. Right. Wow. Uh, like you don't actually, like most people don't say like, I would like to stop believing in God today. And most atheists don't say like, I'd like to suddenly start believing in God today. Right. Um, wow. you can have sort of like a disposition that you tend to operate out of. Um, and I can, I can try to have one disposition or the other as best I can. Um, but it's not ultimately up to me. Like I'm sort of one, uh, personal catastrophe away from changing my views on something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, so that's, that's kind of always in flux to me. Uh, I'm not trying to be evasive on it. I just, I don't want to overstate no, my case sure. on something. That was such a good answer that I'm literally okay. scratching one of my questions completely off my list here. <laughs> Good. All right. All right. That, that just that right. just answered a couple questions. So, okay. I, I guess I'm I'm curious uh, to know if um, just for because we have a, a broad spectrum of listeners from uh, completely and I'll just use a generic term grouped into kind of the non-religious uh, kind of side of things in it all the way over to what we, you know who would be considered more you know conservative fundamentalists what have you. Um, yeah. I've what, probably already done a terrible job of, of alienating people. No, no, no. It's what we do, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah. It's what, all right. Very good. What, very it's good. what we do. <laughs> I'm so, sorry to interrupt. Go, go no, ahead. No, no, you're absolutely fine. Um, I, I'm just always very, very curious uh, in kind of learning about people's individual journeys. So I'm, I'm just curious if, if there was a specific uh, period of time, I guess, through kind of your questioning. It sounds like, you know, hermeneutics may have been one of those courses where you're like, oh, wait a minute here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know in, in other interviews, you've mentioned uh, taking archaeology and, and things of that nature. Was yeah, there yeah. a specific time that you look back to where you're like, okay, things are starting to unravel a little? Or was it just kind of a gradual, you know, 
Yes. No, there was, there was, uh, I mean, there was a specific year and then there were specific conversations within that year. I I took a year off of college and lived in California with some friends for, um, a while, like back when I was like 20 or so. And that's when my, my beliefs started to really reorganize themselves. And it was really, at first it was just because I was really lonely at the time and spent like, cause I I moved to a place where I didn't know that many people. Mm, And I, I dealt with that for a few months by just reading a lot. So, Mm um, so I was at the libraries or Barnes and Noble or whatever, just reading a lot. Um, and that, that was the sort of this time when I started actually reading real theology and real philosophy. Um, so (laughs) that was part of it. But here's the thing though. I, I was still around that time. I had a few good friends who were very much in like traditional church world. And so I'd be rethinking some things on my own. Um, while again, while I'm kind of dealing with, uh, like sadness and being far away from home, uh, like loneliness of not having a whole lot of friends around at the time and just kind of working a job at Starbucks. Um, so I'm kind of in this like angsty condition to begin with. And I'm also rethinking a lot of things that, uh, may or may not have to do with the eternal state of my soul. Right. So I'm doing all that. And, um, I remember one day I, I had recently, um, there was this one particular pastor I had who said kind of terrible things, but they were also things that uh, were the logical extension of everything I had ever believed. And so it was kind of, in a way, it kind of let me kind of mirror and figure out uh, where does this idea go. Um, so I, I brought to him one day, like I had just learned that, uh, you know, I guess, for instance, the the word hell, like that that, that was a very hell is an important belief in evangelicalism, right? Like it's not yeah. something that it's not something you can kind of say like, eh, maybe like <laughs> if there's a, if there's a hell, there's a, that's a really big deal. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, like that, that, that is actually the most important thing to, uh, your entire life. If, if there is such a thing. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. and, um, um, actually, yeah, uh, I have a story on that in a minute. Um, but, <laughs> I'd love to hear it. um, so uh, I had a uh, I had just learned you know for instance that uh, that the word hell appears anywhere from zero to seventeen times depending on how accurate the translation is and that none of the three words that mean hell uh, actually translate to what we mean by hell in English usually like like, like eternal like, conscious torment you mean right yeah like so there's uh, you know Gehenna Tartarus yeah. uh, Sheol yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, in jail in the New T- uh, in Old Testament, right? Um, so in the Hebrew Bible, it's it's got it like another thirty nine times if it's a King James version. Um, but basically, I kind of learned that the gist was the fewer hells it has, probably the more accurate the translation because none of these really mean quite what we think of, at least. Wow. Um, so I just kind of posed an innocent question to this pastor of mine one day, and I said, like, you know, why didn't I ever hear this? Um, that's an interesting idea that that like no, the word hell as we think of it doesn't necessarily quite exist in the, in the New Testament, not, not the way I was taught at least. And his response was, uh, well, you should be beyond asking that question. And I was like, yeah, I was like, oh man, like that's, that's an interesting, but that's an interesting thing. Like when you're prohibiting a question by saying that shouldn't even be on your mind. So he had a few Uh. other good ones. He had a few other good ones. Here we go. All right. So, um, so this, and this guy was like really instrumental for me to getting over some of these things because again, he's kind of showing me where his ideas go, which were my ideas before. Oh um, and, man, I get that. I get that. 
Yeah, so he told me one time, um, kind of on that same issue, I was like, you know, why isn't that our church doesn't really do that much philanthropy? Like, why aren't we giving to the poor very much? We seem to, like, invest a lot in, uh, like, missions and, like, things that kind of get people in um, and, like, yeah, missions overseas, but we don't actually just, like, give money away to help feed people or whatever. Um, and he said, you know, Tad, like, that's a good question, but, like, at the end of the day, you got to think about like this. Um, if you give money to feeding people instead of giving money to a missionary who might convert them, then there is the chance that somebody is going to get fed but spend eternity in hell. So if you think about it. Now, like, so that sounds really dumb, right? Like when you say (laughs) it like that, like, but that's actually true, right? Like if there is such a thing as hell. Right. um, Absolutely. terrible person if you give money to people um, out of your budget that could be spent converting them. Like you're an, actually a horrible person like under that, that paradigm. Um, and then he also said something effectively. I asked once like, you know, like we, we don't seem to do very much like creation care of any kinds. Like we don't seem to like, you know, and he kind of said like, well, yeah, we don't do much creation care, but like look at it this way. Like even if we believed like what like climate science says, like we don't, but even if we did, um, you've got to think about it this way. Uh, God's going to come back and destroy the world very soon. So you're actually kind of working against God if you recycle, <laughs> you know, until you, oh, um, if you uh, say things like those are, but those are not outliers. Those are, that's the thing is those are completely consistent beliefs. Like he's are. just, just being like someone who's really held on strong and faithfully to the same world that I grew up in. Right. Like, and I can't fault him for that. If he had all sorts of hypocrisies in there, then maybe, but um, in as much as he's just staying like true to the faith and like, I understand where that's going. And I, it, but it was like hearing those happen, like that, that's what was helpful to me. Yeah, um, there's, absolutely. There's, there's a story of, uh, that I use in my, so I, I have this book, God is unconscious. And then I'm writing another one right now that'll hopefully be out by the end of the year or early 2017. That's like at a more accessible level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'm trying to get this theory out to the public or whatever. And one of the stories I use in it is there was this prisoner, I think one of the last men to be hung um, in England, named Charles Frederick Peace. And he was a prisoner whose guilt was not under question. He was a brutal murderer. Um, absolutely no question about that. Um, but he, um, so the story goes, he's being led out to the gallows. And this is a time when the crowds would, you know, gather around the entire town to watch somebody be hung, right? So he's being led out this kind of, this, uh, disgusting figure. Um, and there's a priest following behind him, reading from his prayer book, you know, recant and you will be saved. Don't recant and you will be consumed by the flames of hell, et cetera, et cetera, right? So he's doing this whole thing. So the priest is doing this. And at one point, this prisoner called Peace turns around and looks at the priest in the eye and he says, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that I'm going to spend all eternity in hell starting in a couple minutes from now? And this priest, you know, kind of is taken aback and he says, you know, like, of, of course, I, like I'm a priest, of course I believe that, right? Like, what, what are you even saying? Yeah. Uh, and peace goes, well, I don't. But here, and this is like, uh, this is supposedly like sort of pretty close to verbatim what he said. Um, he goes, I don't believe that. But if I did, let me tell you what I would do. I would crawl on hand and knee over broken glass from one coast of England to the other, preaching the gospel 24-7, if it took that just to save a single soul, if I believed in a God like yours. Mm, so wow. I said, and, I, and then, like, and of course, at the end, uh, peace doesn't repent, and neither does the priest. Man, right? wow. So, so, so both I mean, exposed. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and it's, 
argument about like who has the correct belief. Priest just kind of turns around and says, uh, you don't, you just don't believe as much as you think you do. That's the only difference between us. Neither one of us believe this. Um, I'm just going to admit it and then get up on the gallows and go to sleep. <laughs> I, I read an article once a while back in the Atlantic. Um, everybody's always really hot and bothered, um, with people trying to convert other people. Mm-hmm. It's like, stop trying to convert me. No, you stop trying to convert me. We should all stop trying to convert everybody. And <laughs> this one, I can't remember her name right now, but it was such an intelligent article. It's probably six, seven years ago in the Atlantic. And she was, she was talking about why, um, she thinks that, uh, you're, you are an unloving Christian. If you, you know, you call yourself a Christian, but you are incredibly unloving. In fact, you are sadistic to the nth degree, like worse than Hitler could have ever been. <laughs> if you don't try with every breath you muster to convert me every waking minute of every single day, like if you believe that, you know, because I'm an atheist or, you know, because I'm gay or because of whatever, that I'm mm-hmm. going to burn forever in eternal conscious torment, you know, like one famous pastor always used to say, well, hell is hot and forever is a long time, you know, um, uh-huh. <laughs> and if you're not going to try to convert me, then I think that you're sadistic, that you're a, you're a monster. So, right. so she right. was advocating. It was a call for Christians to become more evangelical. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was amazing. And that was yeah. one of those rupturing moments for me that I was like, I'm not standing on the preach corn, you know, street corners preaching with a sandwich board. In fact, that guy with a lunatic and, and a bullhorn with the sandwich board on campus telling everybody they're going to burn in hell is actually a much more consistent person right. Than I am. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even kind of yes, to take breaks. From there. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that I mean that's kind of like so like in psychoanalysis basically uh, it's it's the unconscious that is the truth it's never the, your conscious manifestation is the unconscious. Whoa! Tell, okay, explain that a little bit. I I don't know a lot about about psychology. That's that's I know that's something deep though. Right, right. Well, so like in, when we uh, sort of in the Freudian and Lacanian tradition talk about an unconscious, what we're not talking about is a subconscious. Um, that actually exists. So like, so when I say subconscious, um, or, uh, I might be talking about, um, neurons firing in my mind that I, or, you know, synapses firing that I am not aware of, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. things that are, so like right now I have synapses firing that are controlling my heartbeat and, uh, breath, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, breath. but I, but I'm not thinking about that, but like we could call that like sort of at a subconscious level, my brain is working. So that's, so just to be clear, that's not what I'm I'm talking about. Like when when we as psychoanalysts say unconscious, we're talking about the structure of how uh, people actually behave without any sort of regard for how they think they behave or how they reason themselves into behaving. So your unconscious is your truth. Like sort of. So like this is kind wow, of okay. And like this is caught up in like the like the the most sort of basic level when someone says like. like 
uh, you know, I think our friend Pete says this, you know, before, uh, like something to the effect of, you don't have to tell me whether you're in favor of child labor. I can look at the back of the tag on your shirt and tell you if you're yeah. in favor of child labor. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a, an, a sort of re- very rudimentary understand example of how an unconscious truth works. Yeah. Right. So that's your actual existence. Right. So the analyst, when you go into analysis, um, you come into analysis and you're thinking, um, I don't understand why I'm getting caught up in these bad relationships. Why do my friendships keep fraying? Why does every uh, you know person I date, why does it always end the same way or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want that, all right? Mm-hmm. And the analyst says, yes, I know that you don't want that, but at the same time, you kind of do, right? Like, so, <laughs> like, it, that you're, you're, you're constructing uh, relationships around you such that you're not able to trust fully, um, or you're, uh, for whatever reason that probably goes back into your rent childhood, uh, you are looking for people who will betray you and let you down, right? Um, so it, it's, so it's actually, um, yeah, I mean, kind of getting back to like how this works in theology, right? Like, uh, you can kind con- you can find like any crafty reason to believe anything that you want. There is a very, very good chance, almost certain, that everything you believe is at least partly wrong one hundred percent of the time, right? And so, what is it covering up for, right? Like, that's the interesting question. Is what I is love it that. For? Uh, do you live substantially differently because of this belief? Uh, because, like, uh, I know, for example, uh, when I stopped believing in uh, like the the version of hell that I grew up in, to use our earlier example, yeah. uh, that didn't actually change that much about my behavior. That changed like my behavior for like one weekend out of the year when I would have been on a mission trip. But that's about it, right? Like, so I yeah. obviously didn't actually ever really believe it that much, right? Um, and my wager is that we could find that throughout everything that we believe. Um, and it's wow. not just to say that theology is a fiction. I'm saying the structure of everything is a fiction, right? Like everything that we tell ourselves is retrojected to convince ourselves that we are a particular version that we aren't necessarily. So, okay, wow. this is maybe you're gonna, you're probably going to listen to me right now and be like, oh man, nice try, Adam. Let me explain all of that again to you. But, but maybe I might. I might be connecting some dots here that we talk about on the podcast quite a bit when we talk about um, beliefs and our unconscious biases. So Mm -hmm. we talked um, in one of our earlier episodes about how we all have, we have systemic biases, we have affinity biases, but you know, the big one that we talk about a lot is a confirmation bias and that we're all Uh living out this confirmation bias on a regular basis that you've got these inherent, maybe even inherited inherent beliefs And Mm -hmm. what you're constantly trying to do, even though you don't realize it, is filter out anything that disagrees with that and accept and magnify anything that confirms it. So isn't it funny that I realized one day that all the books on my bookshelf were footnotes of the other books on my bookshelf? They were the bibliography, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? They were the bibliography. It's like, wait a second. It was like moment of clarity. I think something's wrong here. If what I'm really trying to do is learn... All I'm hearing is I'm telling myself the same story over and over and over again because I've got this giant confirmation bias that I didn't realize. It sounds to me like when you're talking about how psychoanalysis helps us to think about not so much what the correct belief is, but how our beliefs work, you know, how we repress, how we disavow. It am I connecting dots that shouldn't be connected there? No, I think that I think that that's great. Um, 
yeah. So thank like, you. The, thank you. I, mean, I, I feel better now. <laughs> no, it, it is. It is. I mean, I, the, like a, a you know a proper orthodox uh, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis can be just as irritating as a proper orthodox uh, uh, like Calvinist or some you know sure, things like sure, that. Right? Sure, sure. Like we can we can we can all be just as terrible. Um, but uh, so they might quibble with some of that. But no, I think that that's true. That's um, we we at a basic level seek pleasure, and mm-hmm. it's less unpleasurable to just keep believing whatever we believe already. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the matter is pleasure, then why not just keep believing basically the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I – so an example I use in God is Unconscious, and then I'll, I'll use it again like in this next book, The Seneca and the Fool, um, is that – uh, there's this uh, philosopher of science called Thomas Kuhn who talks about how paradigms shift. And one of his examples is when you look through, like there's sort of this normal science where we build constructively one belief to another. And maybe it's influenced by confirmation bias, but maybe mm-hmm. it's just really good science, right? Yeah. Um, but then there are these moments where this punctuated equilibrium where we shift to a different idea, right? So when we were switching from the Ptolemaic universe to the Copernican uh, heliocentric model, right. Um, it wasn't a case that we had just better evidence for Copernicus right off. Like the, the equations worked out about the same either way with very minor differences. We didn't oh, have wow. technology, right? So there comes a point in which we shift from one reason to another. And sometimes this guy Kuhn sometimes says, uh, well, sometimes it's as simple as like the old regime just dies off and like newer scientists with different ideas uh, come into the fray. Um, wow. And he says, you know, the, the interesting thing is this does not happen in theology because uh, we don't have any sort of like it doesn't matter what the average person thinks of the uh, uh, disparities between quantum mechanics um, and string theory, right? Uh, that doesn't matter. Like you don't get to right. say, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but everybody gets to be their own favorite theologian. So there's sure. not sort of uh, progress. Um, but anyway, so Kuhn sort of talks about how paradigms shift, and then a few other philosophers of science, Quine, and a few other characters talk about how basically what happens is our experiences start bumping up against the network of things that we know. And then once those experience, if you think of like kind of this whole interconnecting circular network of things that we know, um, experiences start bouncing up against it. We get errant data. And then occasionally we decide it's actually simpler if we just disregard this whole theory and come up with a new idea to come up with a new idea to explain it. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, think about it this way. If the internet, if we drew out, you can actually find this online if you want to find it, but if you drew out a connection between every website on the internet to all the websites that it has hyperlinks to it, right? Um, it would be really clear pretty quick which sites are the big clusters called Facebook and Google. It, right? wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be my, yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah, be it, our it, website. It wouldn't be, <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so, okay, so let's just say that networks um, desire homeostasis or epistemic stasis or network stasis in the same way that bodies desire homeostasis, right? Um, if the internet had to decide whether to get rid of your website um, <laughs> or Google um, based on which keeps it mostly the same, uh, which would it prefer? Like it would definitely prefer to just get rid of your website, right? So you'd think based on sort of the way that science progresses that religion would kind of work the same way. Like we basically, we'd want to hold on to our big beliefs and put all of our energy into defending the big beliefs that are really part of our identity um, and then let the other beliefs that conflict with reality go, right? So I'm going to keep believing in God, but I'm going to let go of this other idea that's causing trouble for me, right? Yeah. Um, 
So a weird thing happens in religion, though, because we find, I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying with regard to fetish disavowal earlier, we actually seem to select fetishized uh, ideas in at all costs, right? So when I was raised in that part of the world where one in three people are creationists, so like I understand that because I was raised in that world, I actually kind of knew that it didn't work, but I wouldn't want to admit that to myself because if creationism is wrong, then I would feel like Genesis is not trustworthy. And if Genesis is not trustworthy, then the whole Bible might not be trustworthy. Right. And if the whole Bible is not trustworthy, then there's no God. And if there's no God, there's no afterlife and no meaning to life and everything is terrible. Right? Everything falls apart. The house of like, cards theology, yeah. House of Cards, right? So we end up, instead of the way that, that sort of science progresses, um, in religion we tend to actually defend not the big cluster, not the Google, um, but we actually defend like the smallest idea that has nothing to do with the way that we live the rest of our lives. It's just that it is guarding, like it is the guard post. And once we lose that, we know that we're going to feel anxiety and then doubt the next thing and then doubt the next thing and then doubt the next thing. Yeah. So in psychoanalysis, anxiety is the cause of doubt. Like you never choose to doubt something. You actually prefer to be ambiguous about things because it lets ideas that don't work stay and work, right? Yes. So it's actually better to just be ambiguous about it um, because once you start to feel anxious, then you'll start to doubt. And once you start to doubt, you don't have the control over where that goes. Uh. So just to keep not being ambiguous. So a lot of people think that like they want to be certain, but you actually don't want to be certain. Um, you actually want to be ambiguous um, and indifferent to ideas, and that's the that's the best form of certainty. So here's an example for that, and then I'll shut up. Um, I love this. <laughs> keep going. Go, okay, you so go, man. That's how this goes. Um, when I leave the house in the morning, I'm a good obsessional neurotic, so I start to wonder, did I leave the gas on? today. Will my house blow up, right? Uh, so we've all had this experience at some point. I probably just have this more than most people, right? <laughs> so I worry that the gas is left on at my house. Now, when I'm sitting out in my car deciding whether to go to coffee or to go back into my house and check the gas um, on the oven, um, I feel like I have like an ambiguity to whether or not my house could blow up right then, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I kind of trick myself into feeling like, actually, I'm kind of safe as long as I'm sitting here wondering whether I need to go back. Like, my house is probably not going to blow up for the next two minutes, uh, but uh, I need to decide, and then my house might blow up. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? It's actually in that in ambiguous, in, amb- ambiguous space. That's actually where you feel safety, right? It's not in certainty that my house is fine, right? Actually, if I decide that I'm certain my house is fine and I drive off, I'm still going to think about it, right? Oh, it's actually in ambiguous space where I don't really think about it that hard and where I kind of feel like nothing could happen right now. And it's not until I decide I need to go back and turn the gas off uh, that I actually feel real anxiety that my house might blow up, right? So we kind of trick ourselves into thinking that we want certainty. Uh, but my claim was that what we actually want is ambiguity and uh, indifference uh, because those are the best kind of certainty that we can have uh, because that's where we sort of trick ourselves into thinking that things don't matter. Um, and and I, I'd wager that that is all across our theological ideas, right? 
Um, if I go back home and visit and someone gets into a theological argument with me, um, they know that I can probably run circles around them pretty quick if I want to, like if I want to be a complete I think that's uh, a, I think that's a fair <laughs> wager at this point, Tad. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, so, like, it's actually better not to have that conversation. In, uh, like, in, and I don't want to have that too. If I'm unsure of something, I would prefer to just if I'm not sure. So, like, you know, if I wrote a book and I think that maybe I had uh, something that I wrote that isn't completely accurate, I'd rather just not look that up. I'd rather leave it ambiguous, indifferent. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The, I concretize it. I can start to feel anxious and then I can start to doubt and I can realize that I'm in trouble, right? So we do that with uh, everything, right? Like you prefer not to deal with that argument that you're having with your spouse, right? You prefer to just leave that alone so that things will go away, right? Uh, you prefer not to think about the ideas that you have that don't work, right? It's, it's actually better just to leave them alone. Like so ambiguity is kind of the best kind of certainty, but it's toxic in a way. Man. That is, dude, dude, this, I'm, I'm totally stealing Pete Holmes line. This is a free podcast, man. Yeah. We're not, we're not charging for this. Perhaps, perhaps we should. Maybe we should start charging for this. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I'm glad this works. Oh, this is a blast, man. This is a blast. So I, I'm just curious because I, I, I scarred the inner interwebs, as we say. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that you mentioned was the idea of believing in things that can't possibly be true. And so I guess my question is, 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 it, is that the case because we are misinterpreting much of uh, what was meant to be metaphorical? Um, of course, I'm speaking in terms of like scripture and, and holy writings. Or are we just creating myths and structures in order to feel safer and more complete? Mm, that's a good question. That's a really um, good question. Excellent. My job here is right. done. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think who it was. Uh, was it Crossan or somebody who recently said, like, I'm not trying to tell you that uh, ancient people were uh, speaking literally or were dumb enough to mean things literally when they're clearly just metaphors and now we're smart enough to interpret them as myths. Um, I'm actually <laughs> telling you the opposite. I'm telling you they meant them as myths and we're dumb enough to take them as literal. <laughs> right. So, uh, I can't remember who that was. I think it might've been crossing, but I can't remember. Okay. Um, right. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I kind of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so what are we, or the, you're asking about sort of the nature of, of how we construct myths and why they're important to us? Yeah, because I, I feel like um, yeah, when, when you were discussing your, your book, God is Unconscious, the, the, the feeling I got was kind of that, you know, yeah. human beings by nature feel the sense of alienation and separation. And, mm -hmm. and so we, we tend to strive for something to fill that void, you know, in this case, it would be, you know, the love of God. And but it seems to be kind of this um, unattainable goal. Right. So so I wonder if, if maybe some of the issue isn't that we aren't um, just misinterpreting the, the, the true meanings behind these ancient writings or if we're just constructing, you know, myths and structures just so we can feel a little bit safer, a little bit more complete, a little more whole. Right, right. Well, I think that that's um, so. I mean, that's a good question. But like, and there's so many different ways that you could go with that. Um, I think that one of the more helpful things to studying uh, old texts in general and in psychoanalysis in, in particular um, is that uh, with it, even the author doesn't really know what oh, they mean all the man. time, right? 
Like, and and this is particularly dangerous when I'm writing a book about uh, a very personal theory of trauma, like, (laughs) like uh, about the psyche and about how trauma works. Um, There's absolutely no possibility that I didn't put way more about myself than I meant to in my book, right? Um, And and that's and that's true of any, um, you know, people look at things that Paul wrote, um, you know. So, like one example is that. Um, okay, so Paul seems like pretty myth-free. Like Paul seems very pragmatic. Like he's kind of giving, you know, uh, arrange yourselves these ways, do these things, don't do these other things. Like it's pretty simple, right? Like so, uh, there's not a whole lot of myth or space for interpretation on that level. Yeah. Um, but the space for interpretation in Paul is the why. Like why does he say this thing? Um, so when he has this idea about uh, how relationships work or something, and he or he's talking kind of disparagingly about women or something, um, and then someone will say like, well, does Paul actually? know why he's writing this like what's what's his opinion on why this is an important thing to include in this text um so paul uh was part of the the i think i think it was part of the sanhedrin yes like yeah. so there's this theory of like okay well usually to do that you had to be married so what happened with so paul's not married did his wife die was he given an exemption never married uh was he married at some point and then divorced what why what caused that like you know so there's kind of this there's this whole other level of um okay so somebody says xyz um why did they say xyz does their xyz matter to me um or can i completely disagree with their experience have nothing close to it in my background and still find meaning um out of it man uh, so I don't I don't know if that sort of gets at your question, but hopefully that's a little bit helpful. No, that's great. And then I think what we end up doing is typically what the answer is, and you know that that pastor that you were telling us about uh, that you'd sit with and ask these questions that are good questions, and he would give you stifling answers, mm-hmm. very stifling answers. I think that if somebody asked that same question specifically about Paul, did Paul know why Paul was writing what Paul's writing? The typical answer would just be. Well, the Holy Spirit. Right. And then, then you're just done. And you can't ask any more questions after that. It's just, a, yeah. it's the trump card. Yeah. It's like, it's, that's it. <laughs> it's like, don't ask me any more questions. Uh, um, if, 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 if that works for people, then I say just just stay happy with it. Yeah, like just keep, yeah, just keep running. That's a way easier answer. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know um, now my wager would be that that actually uh, that perspective on things is going to lead to other things that will be very problematic in your life. If, if you're that willing to sort of just give your authority for interpretation over um, that easily, uh, my wager is that that is going to produce a lot of problems for you. Uh, in the course of life, uh, but if it's working for you now, yeah. it's it's a hell of a lot easier hey. than uh, trying to rethink things. We all, we always say, man, we're not trying to lead people anywhere where they don't want to go. So anyone who's ever made a mess of things should have mercy, mercy. Let's talk a little bit about your book, man. Let's talk. Okay. All um, right. The first thing I thought, first thing I thought when I started, because I don't know anything about Lacan. I don't know about Deleuze. I don't know about some of these guys. I just know enough about Derrida to be dangerous and not, uh-huh. in, and not in like, not in like a cool. That's James, how it starts. Not in like, yeah, not in like a cool James Dean dangerous kind of way. Like that guy's an idiot kind of dangerous like sort of way. So, uh-huh. but anyway, I start reading this stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, there is a whole world 
of thought out there that has unbelievable applications that are practical, that can help us understand ourselves. Because one of the things I like about uh, talking to you is you bring together things that seem to give us an understanding, uh, a multifaceted understanding. So like, I'm, I'm not a big Calvin fan, but one of the things that Calvin said in his institutes in the very beginning was all of life, you know, should consist in two things, knowledge of self and knowledge of God. Mm. And so it seems like the intersection or the tangling or, you know, the, even the entanglement of these two knowledges is something that your book kind of touches on. And I, I could be completely wrong, but that's the world that seemed to kind of open up in new language and new territory. And it's so new that I wonder if you could just give us kind of get our feet wet, talk a little bit about what you mean. You touched on unconsciousness, but what is the book getting at? What do you hope to do with uh, the book God is Unconscious? Yeah, man, uh, maybe I'm more of a Calvinist than I thought I was. <laughs> That's kind of disconcerting. Yeah. Um, so I, what I'm arguing in this book is that psychoanalysis helps us think uh, not about you know, what's the correct belief, but instead uh, how does all belief work. Um, so I'm, And again, I'm not trying to argue that uh, religion itself is just a fiction. I'm trying to argue that all truth has the structure of a fiction and we kind of need to think through how we produce uh, truth, how we trick ourselves into um, participating in certain types of reality. Um, because if you don't think about those things, then you get caught up in the bad religion, uh, the bad relationship, the bad politics, uh, the mundane life. You, know, you get caught up in these things if you're not thinking about how they work. Um, so yeah, so like every belief has this structure of a fiction. Every way that we remember something is always a misremembering. Um, and uh, mm. one of the things that psychoanalysis is aimed at is, well, the con put it this way, um, there's this term called the big other that you probably saw all throughout the text, right? Yes, right? So the yes. big other for the, someone like Lacan is like God is one way that the big other might look. The big other might be that voice in your head that's criticizing you or that voice in the head mm. that also on come Friday night is also telling you to go out and enjoy the world more, right? Um, so it, like, it might yeah. judge you for enjoying, but it's also telling you to get out and enjoy <laughs> um, it might be your parents. It might be a, a lover or a friend. Um, it might be your books or your philosophies or whatever. So, like, there is this big other figure that most of the time, when you're feeling um, anxious about something, you're always thinking, "What does another want?" Right? Like, what does God want? Or um, when you feel anxious when you're interacting with somebody for the first time, you're thinking, "Do they think that I'm an idiot? Do they think that I'm funny?" Uh, you know, these types of things, right? Like, it, like anxiety is always about another person. What does that other want? So mm. when people come into psychoanalysis, like the, the, what Lacan would say is that basically you can think about it like this. Psychoanalysis will be over when they realize that the big other does not exist. But he does. But he doesn't mean that whatever problem or whatever person you're trying to care about, just like I don't mean uh, your God. It doesn't doesn't mean that you have a problem with your wife and then you realize that your wife doesn't exist, right? Like it means that you probably realize that that particular way of understanding somebody um, doesn't need to have that kind of operative power. So here's an example that, uh, uh, that, that, that I use from time to time. Um, there's a story of this girl who is this model child and um, 
does, does everything uh, to in order to please her parents, right? So she's getting the right grades. Uh, she's dating the right people. She's a team player. She's obedient. Um, everything that she does, uh, the parents are pleased with, and in everything she does, she's actually trying to get more of those parents' approval, right? So you can imagine how, like, so you probably know this type of person, right? Uh, and you can imagine she goes, she gets the right grades through school, dates the right people, goes to the right college, gets the right uh, job at the right firm afterwards, uh, you know, gets married, has the kids, everything in some way to get that parent's approval. Now let's suppose that some tragic night she gets the phone call about the, the drunk driver on the other side of the road and now her parents are gone, right? Does anything about her world change? in her concrete day-to-day existence, right? Um, She has anxiety. She has sadness. Her relationships start to fray. Um, But in a way, the death of the father actually makes things all the more demanding that you obey, right? So there's there's no longer anyone saying, like, I'm judging you if you don't get into the right school or do the right thing with your life. But she still is going to feel, her language will change. I guess this is an important thing because this is what we do with theology, right? We rearrange the language, but we keep all the same ideas without realizing that we what we've done to ourselves, right? So, So she'll start to say, instead of, I hope my parents are proud of me, She'll start to say, I hope my parents would have been proud of me, or I hope my parents are looking down from heaven proud of me, right? She'll she'll rearrange the language, but everything that she's doing, if she's been doing it her whole life to please her parents, she will still be trying to please her parents, right? So when she goes to psychoanalysis, um, the analyst does not need to convince her that her parents are dead. She knows that. Her ego, her consciousness knows that her parents are dead. That is not a secret, right? The analyst needs to convince the parents that they're dead. Wow! Right, so so that is that is what Lacan means by it's not it's not that we need to uh, tell you that uh, you need to like break off a relationship or stop believing in God or something like that. Um, it's that you need to it, like you don't need to tell uh, like me that God is dead, right? Like I need to re- like God needs to realize that God is dead, um, or I don't need to realize that this belief doesn't work. I need that belief needs to realize it doesn't work, right? Um, so, so again, like, so that's, that's the kind of the way that this works is it's not, it's not like an all-out assault against saying, like, you need to believe more correct things, right? Like, that's boring. Like, you can read another book for that, right? <laughs> uh, like, uh, my book is not going to be good for that. Uh, my book is, is um, interested in um, why it is that we attach to certain um, versions of reality in our head and try to please those in ways that they can't ever be pleased, right? So um, again, if we were to resurrect that girl's parents from our story a moment ago um, and ask them, were, like, did she do enough to please you? Um, they would say what every parent says. Um, of course, she, like, we love her and she never had to do anything to please us, right? Mm. Like, she was just trying to please a version of us in our head. And we're really glad that that version is gone if analysis was successful, right? Man. Uh, so that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. It's not, not an argument uh, about uh, atheism and theism per se so much. So th- that's not quite what I'm interested in, although there's clearly implications for it. Sure. Um, I'm interested in how those ideas become things that we attach ourselves to and won't let go of them. Man. Like- well, thank Right. I mean, oh, dude. Sometimes, um, sometimes we just need a little space on this podcast so I can catch up. Yeah, that was. I'm well, just sitting here. How, so wait a second. How then do you can? I mean, not you obviously can't tell me. Like, does it ever happen? What does it look like when 
God realizes God is dead when when the other realizes the other's not there anymore. The other doesn't exist. I mean, what would how would that manifest? So when so like again, so I'm uh, like a pastor from way back. So I actually still get people who will reach out to me from, and this is going on like six or seven years ago now. Um, who I get people who will still reach out to me on a fairly regular basis. Several people, um, and uh, like several people will ask something to the effect of. Um, like either I become a more progressive Christian or I become an atheist altogether or something like that. And I'll say, okay, so like I've, you know, I've started, like, I've been an atheist. I don't go to church anymore, but like, tell me this, like, do you think that the arguments, uh, about evolution or climate science or sexuality, uh, or something like that, like, what do you think about those things? Right. Like so, to still come back to the same master signifier beliefs of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. you know, because we all know that like evangelicalism, like we'll say that it's all about Jesus, but really it has a lot more to do sort of in day to day life with like sexuality and, uh, cultural, cultural identity, uh, race, these kinds of things. Like there's, yeah. there's a lot of other sort of things bound up in it. Um, and so like, so people will tell me at one in this, like in the same breath, um, I've left this faith, but then they'll ask me like something related to that faith still. Right. And that's, and that's a very common thing. And I don't think that that's weird at all. I think that's a completely normal thing. The moment that they stop asking that question, because I've also seen people like stop asking those questions altogether anymore. Um, that's when the bigger there doesn't exist for them anymore. Right. Like when they've moved on and those beliefs no longer cause anxiety for them. That's, that's sort of when they've moved on. So there's this uh, example Lacan uses about kids when they first start to notice themselves in the mirror. Like when an infant notices that its reflection is actually the same being that's look, doing the looking, that's like developmentally, that's, that's a big deal, right? Like that's when it has enough conscious development, uh, like the synapses are able to make the connection that what they're seeing is them and not some other thing, right? Okay, so, so they get to this point and they're able to see themselves in the mirror and understand that the, the being looking back at them is them. Um, Lacan has this point where he says, you know, what does the infant do every time? What every infant that ever notices itself in a mirror for the first time, what do they do? Every single time they will turn back around and like see if their caregiver, their mother or father um, is smiling, <laughs> nodding along, right? Like, yeah, that really is you in the mirror, right? Like they, so they want that affirmation. So Lacan goes, yeah, stupid story about a kid, right? How interesting is it that from our various earliest moment of subjectivity, we absolutely demand that someone else ratify what we're seeing in front of us, Whoa. right? Like, Whoa. Like, so what would it be like if an infant was so confident in itself that it didn't require the mother's ratification? If it was just like, here I am, <laughs> don't need anybody else to tell me what I see, right? Like, that would actually be kind of a, like, that kid would grow up to be a monster, right? <laughs> like, I, was, that, I was just thinking the same thing. I'm like, I don't know if that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very overconfident child. <laughs> <laughs> it's very overconfident child. Uh, it's probably going to have some like overconfidence issues uh, at best, and, uh, terrible ethical issues at worst, right? Like, so we actually do kind of need that big other figure. Like, we, yeah. I mean, that's that's inescapable. That's not something that like the atheist has like suddenly no big other. Like, you're not going to get away from that. It's just, it's just, it's. But you need to think about how that's working for you. Who are the people that you're trying to please? Uh, what are the fictions in your imagination that you're spending your life trying to appeal to. Um, right. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That is well, so. Oh. So uh, I guess because we we have a very like as I said earlier a very broad audience uh, right. of people all over the spectrum, which is I, I think the thing that we love the most about what we do. Um, and, and so we always give our guests an opportunity to kind of speak to both crowds because I, I think I think our goal has always been to kind of virtually, even though we we, we can't see the people listening, obviously, but um, our goal is to always in a virtual way kind of get them to at least turn towards one another. Uh-huh. And, and and start the kind of uh, productive dialogue that we just don't see happening uh, right now. It seems to be a lot of what we refer to as this red face or this red faced uh, fist shaking kind of <laughs> cl- cl- closed yeah. up, you know, co- shouty conversation that you see on on a lot of media, you know, sources. So, what what would you say to, to both sides, and and how would how would people who are going through kind of that season of doubt or those struggles kind of apply? your work to, to what we would call their journey of, de- of deconstruction. Yeah. Well, um, uh, my rule of thumb, as I mentioned before, is that I am always partly wrong when a hundred percent of the time I'm always at least partly wrong. Right. And I think that's a good rule of thumb for anybody. Um, dogmatism exists on the left and the right. Um, uh, you know, and I, you know, and, and I do have my perspective, so I, I don't want to pretend like I, like, I'm not a big, like, both sides, everybody has it equally wrong, both sides have a point. Like, I actually do kind of want to avoid that. Um, but I think that we need to disagree very clearly, um, but, like, not be afraid to disagree, right? Like, so, and this is kind of an idea from Hegel, uh, the, the philosopher, but, you know, the way that you make progress is actually you do need to state your terms in as clear as possible a way and figure out what the differences are. You know, so like when two people disagree, um, if they both kind of say, you know, I have this perspective, you have that perspective, but let's just kind of get in the middle and say, you know, let's let's only talk about the things that we both agree on, right? Like that's that's actually kind of a weak relationship. Right. Um, it's yeah. actually, it's actually, and you actually, and if you're trying to, if you were not in a, in a conversation between friends, but you were actually trying to debate two ideas, it's actually impossible to move forward in that context. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually, impo- it's actually important that people in secure relationships or in, uh, debates where you want to take an idea somewhere to state your terms as clear as possible. I need to know where the differences are between uh, you and I, right? Like if we're if we're hashing out an idea, right? We don't get anywhere if we don't state our terms as clearly as possible. Um, and th- it is easy for that to become disrespectful and hostile. Like that's the problem, yes. right? It's actually not the disagreement that's a problem. The disagreement is a good thing. If we didn't disagree at some point, but way back in our past, about like whether or not it was okay to like slaughter the neighboring tribe in the neighboring cave, like we would have gone nowhere, right? <laughs> like, this, like disagreement is is the foundation of civilization, uh, but it is it it needs to happen in a in a certain way, right? So um, I guess you know maybe like when I you know talk to people who come from like more of the perspective that I used to have. Um, I want to say to them, I genuinely think you are dangerously wrong. I also understand that you are sincere in your faith, um, that you are a great person and that you do this for the best of reasons. Right. So like to me, like, you know, that, that's always kind of like, that's a weird place to navigate, I guess. Mm, Uh, because I mean, like most of the people I know and love coming as I do from Arkansas have very, very different perspectives than I do. Right. Like, yeah, uh, oh my just, gosh, yeah. right. 
Um, so I don't actually think that like uh, trying to pretend like we all believe the same thing at the end of the day or that both sides have a point. I don't, I don't actually think that that's helpful. Um, but I do think that that can be done in a, in a respectful way. I yeah. Oh, perfect. Uh, Man, you couldn't have said it any better. I think that's a, a really great place. We want to be respectful of your time and the time of our <laughs> listeners. So, so here's, I'm going to put you on this. You, you, this is not a live broadcast, but I'm going to leave this in here as if we were live and millions <laughs> of people were listening to yes. this. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Very good. I feel I feel like I just dipped my toes in some of the water of, you know, the depths of, of what you can, you know, bring to the table in conversation here. Would you please come back and, and dive a little deeper into some of this stuff? I feel like we just touched on Lacan. And there's so many cool ideas. Um, I'm asking <laughs> oh, I, in front of all these people, Tad, will you please? I would, I would absolutely love to. We actually got through about uh, a fifth of the notes that I took down. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah, we, we actually, we barely touched on, on, on sort of like the main bit of my book and uh, like the next one I have coming up. I'm very excited. I think that your listeners will really like the, the next material that I'm doing that's kind of more at a readable, accessible level. Okay. Um, so I'll take but, that as yeah. a you're coming back at least four more times if we only got through a fifth. To. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh, since you mentioned it, when when is the new book coming out? Yeah, the new book um, it'll be called The Cynic and the Fool, um, and I guess I don't even think we really even got into that. Um, but it is uh, going to come out either in late late this year or uh, early springtime next year. Um, it's, it's completely done other than aside from a few edits and then I'm hopefully deciding on publisher options in the next couple weeks. Uh, so we'll see. Well, if you want any opinions on copies, we, we love to read things and (laughs) I think we just decided on, on our next episode title, it's going to be called the cynic and the fool with Tad Belay and it's (laughs) going to coincide with your book release because we cannot wait to get our hands on that. Okay. Well, great. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I'll be happy to come back on, uh, you know, when it's uh, closer to that happening, if you guys would like. That'd be uh, awesome. We would love but, it. Yeah. yeah that, that's great. Well, well, well Tad, I had a great time though. Uh, yeah. Tad DeLay, it is with uh, great pleasure and enthusiasm that we uh, say thank you for coming on the show. And we will uh, definitely be looking forward to your return. <laughs> All right. <laughs> great talking to you guys. Thank you. I was like, you go? Do I go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't know what to go. But I, I, know. I didn't want to edit that out because, again, I feel like so often we reach the end of these things. And I would love to have all these really well-rehearsed thoughts, but that's just not the environment we want to produce here. This is raw and authentic and real. And, man, dude. Man, I, I just... I loved what he said about, um, and I think we put this up on the Instagram a few days ago, um, just about disagreement being the foundation of society or something civilization. along those lines. Yeah. yeah, civilization. Yeah, yeah, because without disagreement, right? You know, there would be no progress. There would be no. So it's, I, it's the tug and tow, man, dude. I just the push and pull. 
I love that because that's one of my favorite responses to that question that we always oh, that we always ask. You know, absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And what a perfect guy to answer that question. Here's a guy raised, you know, evangelical pastor, gave it all up, you know, went sort of, you know, into, into the quote darkness as it were, yeah. and found this new sort of beautiful light. Um, but it doesn't look like Christianity. It doesn't look like faith in the in the terms that we would traditionally use. But man, so brilliant. My favorite part of the podcast was when he was illustrating the point where he used the uh, the story of um, the guy that got hung on the gallows. I think it was Peace? Yeah, his last name was Peace, yep. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. Like that sort of point, using psychoanalysis and mm-hmm. using Lacan and and pointing out the inconsistencies in what we say we believe, I think is probably one of the healthiest things that can happen to anyone. And that is why, but traditionally, that kind of pointing out inconsistencies uh, ends up turning out to be just, you know, you sound like an asshole, (laughs) to put it it lightly. It's like, um, when you, how, uh, debates, on, on YouTube are nauseating to me. I can't watch them. Agreed. I mean, I can very rarely watch them because it's just this pissing contest. It's, yeah. It's like, uh, it's called like right fighting, right? Yeah. Where it's like, I don't even, I don't even necessarily care what I have to say as long as I win. Yeah. Right. And half the time it ends up kind of falling into this weird thing where you're not even making an intellectual argument. It's just like, well, you're stupid. Right. I'm just going to belittle you. So the thing I like about Tad is he's coming up with this. He, he's presenting um, a lens or a mirror or a matrix or whatever you want to call it that shows and reveals deep, deep inconsistencies in beliefs that we say we hold and how those beliefs actually work, how they function, and how the, the unconscious and the ego drive these things and and really tangle them up and confuse them and the lies that we tell ourselves the lies that we expect others to keep telling us man i i could have listened to this guy all day oh yeah i i think there's uh definitely a good good excuse to have him back again in the future oh i can't wait and that new book oh man i can't wait i hope he sends us a copy of that man (laughs) i know that was so good so I hope you guys are as dumbfounded as I am right now. Mm-hmm. I hope you all want to just go back, listen to it again, check this guy out, grab his book. Um, it's one of those books, um, I'll, I'll be honest, I think I said this on the interview, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to read it. It is dense, <laughs> but it is a gold mine. Mm-hmm. It's a gold mine. Um, it's starting to, le- you almost learn new language, you learn new vocabulary, like this concept of the big other. Like, I couldn't wrap my head around that at first, but once I did, I started to see it everywhere. Yeah. And just how motivating it actually is to so many things that we do. So, I think this guy is, uh, is a goldmine. I think he's going to blow stuff up, and I can't wait to see the response from his more popular work that's about to come out. And I just can't believe we got him this early. I mean, I yeah. just feel so lucky. Super, super nice guy, though, too. I mean, Fantastic. I can't reiterate the fact enough that, that so many of these folks who have, who have come on our show, who have, who have given us their time, and, and you know, I think you guys know it goes without saying that, that we're not paying these, these dudes and these people no. to come on. So it, it's just so nice of them to, to share their time with us yeah. and to share some of these 
like this amazing work that a lot of these people have done. I mean, a lot of these folks that we have on our authors and like just so, so humble, so kind, so giving. So much so. So yeah, hopefully you guys just really enjoyed that. So yeah, absolutely. And the music on this episode um, is by a band called Civilian. Yeah, tell and us so about if you, them. If you like the, they're from Nashville. Uh, Derek Webb turned us on to these guys. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. Um, if you're into like the the Wilco, um, they kind they kind of remind me of like a Wilco meets Death Cab for Cutie, but fresh. Um, it's yeah. got it's got some good American rock and the the lyrics oh my are gosh unbelievable and I think fit with our sort of podcast mentality of just struggling having no idea what you believe but feeling the existential weight of the struggle itself yeah. um, so this track that we're about to play right now is called Fear and Tr- it's off the record Fear and Trembling and the link for it is in the show notes but check out Civilian. We hope you enjoy. Please follow us on Twitter at DeconstructCast. Check us out on Facebook uh, as the Deconstructionist Podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Same thing with Twitter or uh, Instagram. Um, Instagram and uh, Leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah. And please, the, the most important thing you can do for us guys um, is to share this. Yeah. Share it with as many people as you can in as many ways as you can so we get more voices that continue to form and inform this space. We do this for you. We know that being in a place of deconstruction and reconstruction is a weird, scary, um, anxiety-laden space. And we want this to be a place where you can connect with others like you, feel like you have a home if you're feeling kind of homesick, and, and know that you are not alone. And the more you share this, the more that becomes a reality for the next person, right? So please continue to share this. Um, I just can't stress that enough. Uh, If you'd like to donate, we do this all out of our own pockets. And uh, we've gotten a few donations. But um, if we want to keep this thing going, it would would be really great if some more people could pitch in. We are working on a Patreon site. Mm -hmm. But look in the show notes um, or on our website, thedeconstructionists.com. Click donate. There's a Squarespace store, five, ten, twenty-five dollars. Just a little bit of money, just to keep us going with um, space and equipment and production costs. And I'm not going to bore you guys with all that stuff. But um, <laughs> enjoy this track from Civilian. John, you got anything else to say? Um, just some some uh, some big big things coming up in the in the very near future that we can't wait to share with you guys. Oh man, stuff that we're really excited about. Some possible trips. And that's oh. and that's all I'll say about oh, that. Oh, dude, we got some stuff brewing. <laughs> we got some stuff brewing. Oh, and keep, uh, especially on Twitter, um, keep suggesting people that you want us to talk to. Oh, um, it works almost every time. We've gotten some amazing guests based off of your suggestions. Yes. People that maybe weren't on our radar. Yes. But are now firmly in our radar. Yes. Um, so keep that coming, Greg man. Boyd. Those have been so good. Tony Jones. Tony like, Jones. Uh, Sarah Bessie. Yeah. Um, so many. Yep. Oh. Uh, we, we got we, some good stuff. We coming. got some, we got some Easter eggs coming for you guys, man. And it's, <laughs> and it's past Easter, but we're just going to give them to you all year long. Yep. Um, we love you guys. We do this all for you. All the feedback and the responses and the questions and the criticisms and the love and the just the the angst. All of it matters to us. We love it all. We love you guys. We do this all for you. Um, keep journeying. Don't do it alone. Keep deconstructing and reconstructing. For now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. Then I have John Williamson. Until next time. A woman sat to sleep around was round. Here.
up and hunted down And by your hair they drug her out into the dusty street The men then spit upon the whore Disgusting no one's eyes but yours You kneel to thumb a masterpiece And the bastards drop their stones So anyone Who's ever made A mess of things Should have mercy, mercy Truly know 